continue the series that we started last week called Jesus Said What? Jesus Said What? And uh, the idea of this is that we often have a Jesus that really is not necessarily the Jesus of the Bible. And we have a view of him that is sometimes a mishmash of, of a cultural picture of Jesus or um, maybe something we've seen in a television show or a movie or a documentary or something or a book that we read. But it really isn't the same Jesus as what we see in the Gospels. Uh, I can remember an old movie from, I guess it's the 70s or something, called Jesus of Nazareth. Any of you remember this movie? This is like one of those really long movies, and I think Max von Sydow is uh, pre- uh, playing Jesus in the movie. And Max von Sydow is of German descent, you know, blue eyes, and he's white. And, you know, and you have this sort of image of Jesus as this really kind of, guy and he's got the kind of light always on his face and he, he never he never gets upset he's always calm and cool and collective and he's gentle with everybody and he's just and that's a picture of Jesus in that movie uh, when you pick up the gospels and you read the gospels wow you see a very different Jesus you see a Jesus who can be very direct uh, he can be very challenging he can be very Uh, out of the norm he's totally beyond what they expected he rubs some people the wrong way he's loved by some and detested by others Uh, so you see a Jesus that's quite different when you look at the gospels the problem is um, if you get your Jesus from the culture then you get Christianity from the culture as well if you get your Jesus from the gospels then you have a more biblical Christianity so it's very important that you know which Jesus you're talking about Um, and also the things that Jesus said in particular many of them are absolutely outrageous and we're going to look into uh, one of those um, uh, today but um, the the things that he says I mean in a sense you could argue that um, they got him killed and Jesus faced execution for the things that he said and the things that he did and some of those things are absolutely outrageous and uh, still uh, transformational for us today uh, even in the 21st century all right so that's the idea of this of this message series Jesus said what and if you find the ad uh, floating around on Facebook you'll see it on our own Facebook page you see that uh, uh, true to form some atheists have weighed in and uh, left some comments on the ad and I've tried to respond respond to those comments respectfully uh, because now we move into the Easter season and uh, we're actually in a, a period that some churches call Lent right now, which is a period of, of repentance and self-reflection. Uh, and in many churches, they do this in kind of preparation for the, uh, the, the celebration of Easter. Um, and it's always a time where people have lots to say about whether or not Jesus existed and whether or not Christianity is true and so on and so on. So last week we started with a foundation of trying to say, well, hold on, before we get into the things that Jesus said, does the Bible really record the things that Jesus said? 
And can we really trust the Bible? And when I say the Bible and Jesus said, I'm talking specifically about Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, known as the four Gospels. Can we really trust these things? Because this is the source material for what we say Jesus said. And can we trust that? And we spent quite a, a time last week um, looking at the science of how we got the Bible and why we can trust the Bible. And I think we built a, a, a case um, to show that what we read about Jesus in the pages of the New Testament is exactly what was written down about Jesus in the first little chunk of uh, the first century. So these four men who wrote this down and those who assisted them were eyewitnesses to Jesus. And so the content, we can date it, and we looked at that last week, and we can trust it because we can build a very strong case that when we say Jesus says this and we read out of something in the Gospels, we can have a very strong confidence that that is indeed exactly what he said. And we came to a conclusion after demonstrating that the, the material is trustworthy that the real reason why people throw Christianity away or disbelieve in Christianity or say it's impossible, I can't believe this stuff, it cannot be true. The real reason is not the history, it's not the evidence. The real reason is that this book dares to say that Jesus did supernatural things and that Jesus did the miraculous and that Jesus ultimately rose from the grave itself. And that, my friends, is our beef, and that is our problem. If, if the New Testament uh, pictured Jesus just as some self-proclaimed Messiah who did a few kind of magic trick-looking things and then died on a cross and that was it, we would have no problem believing that. In fact, from that time, we have dozens of self-proclaimed messiahs who came and went and died and uh, nobody really cares and nobody says, well, that's not true. The reason why we today say, no, that's not true is because it has the miraculous in it. And so we have only three choices. We came to this conclusion last week. We have only three choices if we're going to persist in our unbelief. And choice number one, excuse number one, is that the supernatural, all that stuff that we read about Jesus walking on water and all of that right up to his very resurrection from the dead, that this stuff was not in the originals or what we call the autographs. It got thrown in there over time by some very zealous people who wanted to portray Jesus as God and a miracle worker and it's, it's rubbish. It just got thrown into it at the end or in the middle or whatever. But it didn't start that way. It ended that way. And again, we built, a, I think, a fairly strong case to demonstrate that no, indeed, it was in the autographs. Indeed, the miraculous accounts were there and are there today and they're the same as they were for 2,000 years. Believe them or disbelieve them, we can't use this as an excuse that the supernatural wasn't in the autographs. It's, a, it's the worst excuse. Another one that we can try is we can say, well, the miraculous was there, it was in the autographs, but it's an exaggeration. These people are too foolish to understand the difference between reality and fantasy and for them, everything is a miracle. You know, this multiplication of the food feeds 10,000 people. Well, it wasn't so much like that. It's just an exaggeration. And that's, that's a problem as well, as we discovered, because these people seem 
if you read them, they seem very, very sober and they seem very um, aware uh, of what the difference is between a miracle and a non-miracle. They're even quite blunt about their own failures to disbelieve in the miraculous, right? So the first people who discovered the empty tomb of Jesus, for example, were a group of women. This is written by men that a group of women in the first century discovered the empty tomb of Jesus and had to persuade the men that it was empty. Well, that's a real problem back in the first century because women's testimony was of no account in a court of law. And here you have these women who are the believers and these men who are the unbelievers. So this idea of, well, it's an exaggeration, doesn't really hold a lot of weight either. And then we can look at excuse number three to say, well, they lied. They made the whole thing up. It's the most elaborate concoction that's ever been foisted on the minds of men, and the whole thing is a lie. <laughs> and they all died violent, cruel deaths for a lie. I just finished watching a movie that was released on Netflix a couple of days ago, Paul, Apostle of Christ, I think it is. And it's about the persecution of the church in the first century under Emperor Nero. You want to see what happened to Christians in the first century if they're all liars? Watch that movie, Paul, Apostle of Christ. Very well done. Nobody dies for what they know is false. They may die for what they believe to be true. So it's not a very good excuse. It leaves us with the only alternative, and that is to accept it and to say, well, I believe it. Say that requires faith. Yes, it does. But that faith is based in a train of evidence. It's not based on nonsense. It's based on a train of evidence. All right. So having trying at least to establish the fact that we can trust the Gospels and you can watch the message online. It's got charts and all this stuff, all this interesting stuff. You can review it. We're going to get into the first of the outrageous words of Jesus himself. And these are actually the first recorded words of Jesus that we see in the Bible's New Testament from the Gospel of Luke. Luke was a doctor. He's very detailed in what he writes. Um, uh, chapter 2 and verses 41 to 51, okay? If you do not have a Bible and you, you're brand new to it, I, I always encourage you to get free Bible online, right? So Version, Y-O-U version is the best app in the world, in my view, for an electronic Bible, any version, virtually any language is outstanding video content and things to help you understand and assist you in your journey through the Bible so you don't have to be intimidated by it. You can actually pick it up and learn to read it for yourself. I'm going to read out of Luke chapter 2, verse 41. This is right after the Christmas narrative, okay? Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. And then they began looking for him among their relatives and their friends. And when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, 
sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. He's 12 years old and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And here's the very first recorded words of Jesus in the Gospels. Why were you searching for me? This is a 12-year-old boy. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he was saying to them. And they went down to Nazareth. Uh, He went down to Nazareth with them. He was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. This is a repeated phrase in Luke. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. These are outrageous words. But you have to go back in time to understand why. If you read them today in the 21st century, you say, well, you know, what's the big deal? This kid, he was a little disobedient. He stayed behind, you know. It's like left the home alone there. And, and uh, his parents came running for him. And he said some weird things. Like, what's the big deal? What's so outrageous and life-changing about this? Go back in time with me for a few minutes, and I'll show you why. This is a map of the... the the area there of Jerusalem, Judea, and the various provinces, okay? I want to show you what they did and what the backdrop is for these words, and I'll zoom in a little bit here. Um, And uh, if you look on the screen, uh, you should see Jerusalem. It's got a little circle on it, a little horizontal circle. Do you see that? Okay, and uh, if you go up north, you see Nazareth up there with a little circle on it? You tracking with me? Facebook people, you tracking with me? Okay, so every year, what we're told here is that uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus and their other children, if you read the Gospels carefully, you will see that they had many other children after they had Jesus. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. Uh, she had kids the normal way. In fact, several of them after she had Jesus, the abnormal way, of course. But uh, they would go from uh, Nazareth, where, where Jesus spent his, his, uh, his childhood, and they would go to Jerusalem every year because this was what the law said that they had to do. In fact, they had to do it three times a year for three different Jewish holidays. One of them was Passover, which we see uh, uh, mentioned here. The other one is uh, Pentecost, or weeks which was like a harvest uh, uh, festival. And the last one was tabernacles, or what we call Sukkot today. And that was to acknowledge when they were in the wilderness and and they had this tabernacle that they worshiped God in and so on. And he was faithful to them. So what the Jews would have to do, especially the males, it wasn't necessarily... mandatory for women, but the males had to go and make an appearance at the temple in Jerusalem three times a year. Now the biggest deal, and it's still the biggest deal in Judaism, is Passover. And so we see here that true to form, uh, as we would expect, this family would make the journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem uh, every year. And they did it for all 12 years of Jesus's life. And Jesus was their firstborn son. So true to form, they would do that. It's interesting because the distance is about 70 miles. 
You can still go to Nazareth today. You can still go to Jerusalem today. It's about 70 miles, but they're doing it on foot. Any of you ever been to Plattsburgh before? Plattsburgh, New York? You guys don't know about Plattsburgh? Like the little border town? Okay, so imagine walking to Plattsburgh. <laughs> you know, that's what they did. So it's about four days journey, okay? That they, they, and they would travel in a caravan. It's not just Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, you know, holding hands. Uh, you've got a huge caravan of people because they all had to do this. This is a big deal. You've got mm, perhaps 100,000 or more people would converge on Jerusalem at Passover uh, every year because that was the biggest deal in Judaism. They had to make a special sacrifice in the temple and so on. It was a big deal. It was Passover weekend that Jesus was crucified. So you've got, um, you've got this annual thing that this family is doing, but there's many, many other people with them. Back in the day, the kids would, would kind of run around and travel ahead of the adults and they'd sort of stay back with the caravan. But you're talking about a four-day journey just to get to the place. And so true to form, they end up there. This is what we would expect. What we don't expect is that Jesus stays behind. And so another detail for you to know, and Luke is very, very clear to leave us the clue. He says that Jesus was 12 when this happened, not 13. And that's important for you to know. Any of you know what happens to Jewish boys when they're 13? You don't know? Yeah, they, they have a bar mitzvah, which means they get money. No, well, they do get money, but a bar mitzvah is, is a, a tradition. It's not that old. It's only, I think, uh, four or 500 years old. But at 13, the boy is viewed as a spiritual man. Okay, so back in that time, you have a whole series of commentaries up about the Old Testament law, uh, the Talmud and the Midrash. So these are rabbis who wrote down their interpretations of these things. And in their view, even in Jesus's time, when a boy became 13, that boy would be considered a son of the law. They would be a, a full member of the synagogue and they would be required to now be responsible for living a godly Jewish life. It was like they are now accountable before God and before the synagogue to live a proper life. No more excuses. They have become a son of the law. Well, here Jesus is 12. He's not yet 13. He's 12. And Luke carefully gives us this detail and so if you're Jewish in the first century your eyebrows are raised and you're like wow he's 12 years old and what's going on here he he stays uh behind and he's he's left behind at this and they they find him uh later on in the uh temple so I don't know if you ever seen that movie before He's having like a Kevin McAllister moment in reverse, okay? So, you know, the great Christmas movie, Home Alone, remember? And he's eight years old, and they, they mistakenly leave Kevin back at home. And, and they have this moment on the plane, you know, the McAllister parents say, we forgot something. We forgot something. What is it? And the husband says, oh, I left the garage door open. That's it. That must be the garage doors open. And then they, they're all calmed down. And then a couple of seconds later, they all go, Kevin, right? Because they realize they forgot the kid 
at home. He's by himself at home alone. And it is a hilarious movie because you've got these two buffoon thieves who tried to break into his house. And, he, you know, he kind, of, he kind of learns to defend himself and learns to overcome his, his lack of courage and all this. And we, we love this movie because we relate to this little boy, right? But after a couple of days, what happens to the boy? The boy... Yeah, he gets the courage to fight the bad guys, but he wants his family back because he's home alone. Now, what, we're, what, what happens in our story here in, in Luke chapter 2 is kind of the reverse. Jesus is left in Jerusalem, big city compared to Nazareth. I mean, it's the capital city of, of the nation at that time. The temple's there. There's lots of people there. And the 12-year-old firstborn son of this couple is left behind. You say, how could they be so dumb as to leave him behind? Are they like the McAllisters? Did they have this moment? Jesus! You know, <laughs> Kevin! You know, did they? Well, again, it's the first century. So you've got a big caravan of people who are walking. They let the kids, again, they would run around at the front and... You know, it's, it's not the same where everybody is like, well, make sure they're in the car, you know, like it's a totally different setup back there. It's a lot more mm, casual. And they discover as they're on their way back to Nazareth that hold on a second because they would camp for a night. And presumably on that first night of camp as they're headed back to Nazareth, they say, wait a second, uh, where's our son, <laughs> our firstborn son? He's not here. And so they have to hightail it back to Jerusalem to go and find him. We're told three days later they find him in the temple courts. It's probably three days from when uh, they left him there. Not, uh, it didn't take them three days to find him. Uh, they probably found him fairly quickly, quickly when they went back to, uh, to Jerusalem. But all to say, uh, he, it's a reverse kind of situation because, because the response of Jesus is really, really uh, bizarre. So he says to his parents, why were you searching for me? Like, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? So he's, he's not in Nazareth. He's in Jerusalem. And he's saying, this is my home. This is my home house. Nazareth is Nazareth. Like, it, this is so weird. It's like, it's like home alone in, in reverse, all right? And so these are the very, very strange and quite outrageous words of Jesus. Why? Well, first and foremost, and that little shot is from uh, another Jesus movie. I'm fascinated with these things. I think it's called The Young Messiah. Uh, wouldn't necessarily recommend this one, but it's worth a look if you want to. They, 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 they've created a Jesus that's not necessarily the same as the Gospels. But in any case, it's a cool shot. And so they come back and they see this little boy. And he, he is seated um, in the temple courts, presumably, with these teachers and he's 12 years old, he's not yet 13, but he's seated. When you were seated back then in front of these teachers of the law, it meant that you wanted to learn. 
you wanted to be taught by them. And the way that these teachers would teach is they would present a certain hypothetical problem to their students and they would say, how, how does the law address this? So maybe they would tell a little story and they'd say, you know, you've got these two people and they're fighting over their camel. So how would we address this from the law, you know? And so they're asked, they asked questions to get these young, young people uh, to, to learn the Old Testament law by applying it to daily life. And so Jesus, true to form, he's, he's there. He, he's only 12. So maybe the, anything that he said is, well, he's only 12. I mean, maybe he'll get over it, you know? Like he's not yet a son of the law. But he's 12 years old, he's sitting there, he's listening to them, and he's asking them questions. Huh? They're the ones who are supposed to ask the questions, and he's turning the tables on them. At 12 years old, he's not even 13 yet, and he's asking them questions, and they're kind of stunned. And they're like, listen to what this little boy is saying. They're, they're stunned at his answers and at his understanding of the Old Testament. And he's only 12 years old. His parents step on the scene and they're astonished. His mother is like, what in the world is going on? Why have you done this to us? We've been looking all over the place for you. And he blurts out this, why are you searching for me? So in Jesus's mind, and you have to understand he's fully God, but he's also fully human. And in his mind, this, this is like a no-brainer for him. He's trying to, he, he's saying to his, his parents, he's saying, why are you looking for me? Like, why is this mysterious to you? This is exactly where I belong. I am not lost. I'm not home alone. I'm not in any trouble. I'm right here where I'm supposed to be. And he's 12 years old. He's not even 13 years old. And the teachers are scratching their head saying, where did this kid get this understanding and this knowledge? Do you know what that is? He is extremely secure. This is not a little insecure 12-year-old, which is what you would expect. This is a very, very secure young man. He doesn't feel at all lost. He doesn't feel at all like surrounded by people who he doesn't understand. He doesn't feel like something bad's going to happen to him. He is completely secure where he is, and he's wondering why his parents don't get it. Very interesting how that young of a child can have such a sense of security. And this is very profound for us because we too need that sense of security. Wherever we are in life with God, we should be able to say, this is, this is home because God is with me. Doesn't matter where I am geographically, it matters where I am spiritually. And if I have God, I can have a sense of security. Wow, and he's only 12. Then you see, he says, I had to be in my father's house. Emphasis on the word had. So he has a compulsion. He has a drive. He has a calling 
to be in those temple courts. And he knows it. He knows it very surely, even at the age of 12 years old. This is where I must be. This is where I have to be. And you, mom and dad, are, are asleep at the switch. You do not understand what I am saying. <laughs> it is outrageous and a touch disrespectful, I would add, for Jesus to be saying this to his his parents. I mean, granted, they know that he, you know, he came into the world in this rather odd way, okay? But they've watched him for 12 years, 12 years, and, you know, now he's starting to say this stuff, and maybe they're going like, well, he's only 12. He'll get over it. He's not yet 13. If he's 13, then he's going to be really responsible for what he's saying, but, you know, he's a kid. Maybe I don't know what's wrong with him. Maybe he needs... He needs counseling or something, but, but you know, they, they don't understand what he's saying. But he does. He knows his call. He knows what the Father has called him to do. And that's why he says, I had to be here. This is where I am supposed to be. Calling at 12 years old. How many of you remember when you were 12 years old? You don't remember? May God help you. I mean, if you, you remember a little bit when you were 12 years old? I mean, were you thinking about this stuff at 12? Like, I wasn't thinking about these things at 12. At 12 years old, I was thinking about baseball uh, and baseball and baseball. And at 12 years old, being from a, a, a Jewish, uh, I'm Jewish, so I had to go through training to have a bar mitzvah, and they teach you how to read Hebrew. I had no clue what I was reading, but they teach you how to pronounce it. But, I mean, I didn't have any sense of, of, of God or calling or not, not at that point. Not at, but he's 12, and he has that sense of this is what I'm on this earth to do. This is why I'm here. I am called to do this. Crazy. But we relate to this because we all need to know why we're here. We all need to know what we're here on this earth for. Are you a meaningless lump of DNA? Or does God have a plan and a purpose and a call on your life? In Christ, you can discover what that is. And finally, this is the most outrageous part of the line. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? So if you're Joseph, and Joseph curiously disappears from the Gospels after this, we don't see him at all after this. We don't see much of Joseph anyway in the Gospels. I mean, even when the wise men visit the house, where Jesus may have been about two years old when that happened, uh, Joseph isn't even mentioned. I mean, we don't even know what happens to this man after this moment. But can you imagine Joseph there? I mean, he's taking care of Jesus for 12 years. And he says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? If I were Joseph, I would have said, excuse me, uh, what do you think we've been doing in Nazareth for 12 years? Like, a little bit disrespectful of a 12-year-old son to say that his house is the temple courts. A little bit disrespectful, but this is what Jesus says. I had to be in my father's house. He doesn't say in our father's house. He doesn't say in the father's house. He says, my father's house. So if you scour through the Old Testament, 
and you try and find in the 39 books of the Old Testament, somewhere where somebody referred personally to God as their personal father, you will not find this. You will find some mentions that God is a father to Israel and a father to those who follow him, but you will never see a person personally address God as their personal father. You do not see this until Jesus makes this audacious and outrageous claim that God the Creator is his personal father. What? Well, he's 12 years old. Maybe he'll get over it. I don't know. Like, I don't know what he's been doing, who he's been talking to. He's only 12. Okay, this phrase that Jesus used, he, he used it quite often in his ministry, not only at 12 years old, but as an adult, years later, these are the words that got him executed by saying, my father. So that shot is, is from uh, Mel Gibson's uh, The Passion of the Christ. And you will see in the Gospel of John another time that Jesus uses this phrase. And this is after a miraculous healing that he does on the Sabbath. And he says this, my father is always, note that, my father, there's the phrase, always at work to this very day. And I too am working. For this reason, John chapter 5, verse 18, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Blasphemy. Nobody can do that. Nobody can claim to be of the same essence as the creator. That's blasphemy. There's one God. There's one creator. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You cannot claim that he is your personal father. You are trying to say you are of the same essence as him. And that is blasphemy and we will charge you. And this is what they tried to do. And eventually Jesus was executed partly for this phrase. It enraged the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, not because they were bad people, but because they were uh, uh, carnal people. They were people who thought that they had it all together and they had an understanding of what all the Old Testament meant. They couldn't see, couldn't understand that they're looking at God in the flesh when they see Jesus right there. And for them, they had to, in the name of God, get rid of him because he is a blasphemer. And he started this stuff at 12 years old. He's calling God his own father. You know what that is? That is a sense of identity that he has. He knows who he is even at 12 years old. Ask yourself the question, who am I? People who are adults are still wrestling with this question that sense of personal identity. Why am I here? That sense of being called. How am I doing in terms of safety? Do I feel safe where I am? That sense of security, 
that we are longing for. We see all of this in this little phrase. Two little verses in Luke's gospel from Jesus. And the promise that we have in the scripture is that when we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, his son, who is the very essence, uh, the very nature of God, when we have that relationship, we too can be secure. No matter where we are, no matter what we're walking through in life, we can still feel safe. Because we say, well, if I don't have anything, if I don't have anyone, I still have God. And me plus God makes majority. Everything else I can handle. I'm a majority because I have God with me. Doesn't matter what I face. And the promise of the scripture, even death itself, you can walk into its jaws and feel safe because you have God with you. Why am I here? When you have God in your life, you will begin to understand exactly with laser focus why he put you here on this earth. A sense of purpose, a sense of hope, a sense of calling. This is what we're all searching for. And ultimately, who am I anyway? Not what do I do for a job, but who am I? And the ultimate identity is to say, I am a child of the king. I am a child of God. I'm not God. <laughs> Jesus is God. But I, by adoption, have been put into God's family. Through what Jesus did for me on the cross and through his empty tomb, I am adopted into his family. And now I can say who I am. It doesn't matter if I lose my job or get a new job. That doesn't change who I am. It doesn't matter if I'm married or divorced. It doesn't change who I am. It doesn't matter if I have children or I don't have children. It doesn't change who I am. It doesn't matter where I live. It doesn't change who I am. Who I am is based on God. Ooh, and he never changes. Man, I'm telling you, that is some outrageous, outrageous words of Jesus even at 12 years old. 